final look at uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm already uh, starting to prepare messages in Matthew, which will be getting next week. So I uh, look forward to that. I think that will be a great blessing to us. I hope you've uh, certainly enjoyed the 1 Corinthians, all that. There's uh, so much in here. Of course, it, it's, it's a little depressing, if that's the right word to use, because the church of, of Corinth is so full of problems. But in learning about their problems and what Paul says and how to rise above them and fix them, of course, there's great instruction. So it's a very practical book, and I hope it has been that way uh, for each one today. Uh, as we started this last section in uh, chapter 16, we saw there's five uh, different things, maybe four, depending on how you look at the one, uh, different things that Paul says we need to be careful about, to be watchful, and to stand firm in the faith. Uh, last week we looked at uh, act like men, and uh, perhaps uh, act like men, he, he means to be strong. I, we looked at it, the idea of being uh, mature. So, in order to fight a good fight, we must know the rules of engagement. That is to be strong in the faith. We've got to know who the enemy is, our weapons, how to gain victory. Uh, you can't be strong in the faith if you don't, if you're not strong in the Word of God. So, we do this by becoming able students of the Word. We ought to be strong and mature to act like men, but certainly not to be cowards. The Lord gave Himself for us. How can we do any less? So, by the grace of God, we would give our lives for Christ, whether it be in sacrifice or death, or whether it just be in uh, disciplining ourselves and in denying ourselves when necessary, we should not be able to do enough for the Lord. And of course we finish with love and this temper will be the motivation for all we do. And so as we begin in verse 15 with the final exhortations here, um, we see it has been addressed about many issues in the local church. We're reminded of this in verse 15, that it was written to real people at a certain time in history. And so this helps us to be able to understand how to, uh, what it means and how to apply it. When we're real. This is not, it's, the Bible is not just a lot of pithy sayings. Um, it is instruction to people who needed it at that time, and we do today. And uh, so it, it guards us against this idea that we can just go and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. It, there's a context to the Word of God. And so it's, we read about Stephanus and those in verse 17 who were visiting Paul. They probably delivered the letter to Corinth that he, that once they left him. But we learned that Stephanus and his household were the first converts the first fruits, as Paul came there. Remember, Paul says he's thankful that he only had, uh, hadn't really baptized anybody but Stephanus. Uh, in other words, that was the first one. And once he got that, and once he got established, and probably appointed elders, they did the baptizing at, at a certain point. And so he was thankful for that. And so here's the Stephanus that he's referred, referring to. He's a leader here. And we notice that he has maturity about him. Um, it says here in verse 15, um, Stephanus was the first convert in, in Achaia, and they were they and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. He says, "Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer." So 
There's a qualification here to someone who wants to be a leader, not, not necessarily an elder, although that certainly would be part of it, but if you're going to be a leader, a leader among men in the church, and by men and women, um, you've got to be someone who um, has devoted themselves to serve the saints of God. And Paul commends them for devoting themselves to the fellow saints. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about becoming, about learning, although clearly if you don't learn doctrine, you can't practice doctrine. So it's about that, but it, the, the goal is to make us Christ-like and to, to help us to be able to love as God has loved us and to serve others. <clears throat> and so not only is this an example for us, but in verse 16, these are the ones he says that we are to submit to. Again, I don't think it's necessarily because they were pastors or elders of the church. But in other words, these are the ones you are to focus on to be like. This is the real deal here. They were not the problem. They were the solution to the problems in the church. Doesn't mean they didn't have their own battles and their own problems, but that they served the Lord and they didn't use... Uh, excuses to disrupt the church. And said they were looking to be part of the solution. They were people to uh, follow after. They weren't the problem, you know. You know there, there were people that you, I would imagine, if, when they come to the church, you're glad to see them. They were encouragers. They were, your, they were servants. No doubt each one knew these, if I had a need, this person would help me meet that need. <clears throat> There's some people when you see them, uh, you, you know, your, your first thought is, oh, me. Because they're, they're always depressed. They're always down. They're always complaining. They're always unhappy. They're always critical. And it's not that those, sometimes those things have their place. But we don't want to be out there. We want to be the kind of person that people enjoy being around, not because we're telling jokes all the time, but because we're, we're there for them. And we, and we Listen to what they've got to say and, and tell, talk to them about the Lord or, or whatever. But we're, but we're there to help them. And people will know that. They'll see that. He says they're devoted to the things of God. They're devoted to the, the church. Um, in the Greek form, it's one of intensity. Devoted. It's like devotion. It's not that, well, this is my church. These are my people in the church. I've got to make the best of it. You know, look, every, every one of us can get on people's nerves if we try. That's some more than others, right? You know, you know, admit that. But, but no, it's not about, well, i got to make do. These people were devoted to the people in the church. They looked at them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The KJV expresses this intensity with the word addicted. They were addicted to the church. <clears throat> to one another, to, to serving one another. Now it's got maybe a little bit of a, a, a of a negative connotation in our day, but it suits well if you think about it. Someone who's addicted, like if you have a strong desire for something, you're, you have an impulsive desire for it. You're not satisfied without it. You never have enough of it. You don't function well without it. Now, most things we don't want to have that kind of a devotion to or addiction to, right? But Christ and the Word and the church 
and the things of God and doing what's right and, and, and serving one another. Those are things that we should be addicted to. But we're not happy if we're not serving, if we're not helping, if we're not doing what the Lord would have us to do. <coughs> got a little, I think my allergies are a little bad today, so bear with me. So we, life, life is not satisfied without Christ and without the things of Christ, without the church. You know, I think there's a lot of people who really can take take the local church or not. They, they're not there half the time. They don't care that much. Uh, it's just not that big of a deal to them. Um, David said uh, in Psalm 17, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When he was awake, that's what was, his life was about, the Lord. And he was happy. And he was not happy apart from having God. So every church needs men and women who are devoted to Christ and make decisions in light of service, not merely wants. In other words, you know somebody who is mature enough that when they do things, when they're making decisions in life, going about their day, they do so with purpose. They do so with devotion. And you know this person who, you know, you know he's controlled by his emotions. You know that she's controlled by her by pleasure or want, you know, and you see that the decisions they make, so you don't, you, you don't really trust them. You don't necessarily go to them in confidence, or you don't maybe look to them as an example because you know something's not right. And we don't want to be like that. It should be our goal. People can count on us. And every church needs that. It doesn't mean that the rest of us are off the hook. That should be a goal for everybody. Church should be full of people like that. So this devotion will always be worked out in serving others, as Paul says here. You know, the word deacon means servant. It means minister. That's all it means. It's the people who serve, because that's what the church needs. Godliness is most evident in a serving nature. It's, godliness is not necessarily seen in how much of the Bible you know. Now again, I never would downplay that. But if the Bible isn't reaching your heart and your actions and, and your and, you know, directing everything you do, then it's just knowledge that, that gains nothing. And so if you're not involved in people's lives, and certainly in the saints' lives, all here is, is I think, indicating you're not really devoted to Christ because you're not devoted to his body. <clears throat> Christians are moral people, but they're not just moral people. They are servants. They are caring. They are involved with one another. This is important. You're not isolated. And we notice here that he says to be subject to these kind of people. This attitude should be carried over to all of us. There is a sense in which we are to submit to the leaders, but there's just as much a sense in which I submit to you and we submit to one another. I I am a minister, so much like a deacon, that means one who serves. So a minister is one who ministers. I'm, I'm here to look after your needs. I'm not here to just get a paycheck. I'm not here just to get uh, honored as, well, he's the pastor. He's something special. No, I'm here to uh, 
feeds you the word of God. We've used the example before of the waitress. Who, if she, she's your server, right? She, she serves you the word of God. Or she serves you your food. So she serves, she's there to serve you. And that's what I do. I, I serve you the word of God. Uh, you know, I'm not just one who serves. There's a specific thing I'm to serve. I'm to serve the word of God first and foremost. And so, uh, we see this, um, in 1 Peter 5, a little bit of this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You lead by example. You lead. Yeah, sometimes you've got to do some hard things, but you lead the flock. You don't push the flock. You don't beat the flock. A good shepherd leads the flock to that which is nourishing, to the food, to the grass and water, right? A good shepherd isn't using the flock. It's he's there to help the flock. That's what Paul is saying here. So it says in verse 5, um, verse 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive an unbound fading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Fold yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time might exalt you. So God is looking for servants. He saved us to be a servant, to be helpful. And in due time, he will reward us for that. So someone put it like this. All godly people are to be submitted to. I think it says this is what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean that there's a servant as such in a domineering way. It means that that's the kind of person that you want to look to. To serve yourself. So the lost or rebellious aren't to be submitted to because that would involve compromise. You see the difference. You know, the lost person, uh, you don't submit to them. Now, I'm not talking about your boss. If he's your boss, of course, there's a certain level of submission there. But I'm talking about you don't submit to him because he doesn't got anything good to say. He doesn't have, he, he's not leading you in the way that you should go. So you don't submit to his leadership because he's lost. He's walking in darkness. doesn't mean we can't serve the lost. But we don't have the same relationship with them. You know, love can't cover a multitude of sins for the lost person because that person is under condemnation of the Lord. He needs to be saved. Um, Matthew 20, here's something the Lord said, 26. It shall not be so among you. He's talking about here how the Gentiles, you know, look the Lord in over each other. They're looking for power. They're looking to climb the corporate ladder, right? They don't care who they are. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever shall be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, of course, demonstrated this, uh, that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who understands what true godliness is. It's not seeking attention. It's not seeking to be held and is seeking to serve first and foremost. 
So holiness is first seen in a servant spirit. So whatever else you might know about godliness, about being holy, whatever word you want to use there, it starts with humility and serving and looking to the needs of others. And then in verse 17 and 18, he rejoices at these three men who have come. Uh, they have ministered to him, and they professed his spirit. <coughs> and so he says, give recognition to such men. And so the church should be full of encouragers. He, he says when someone does what is good and right, uh, that should be recognized. And that's okay. Let's encourage one another. Um, do we spend time figuring out how we can encourage other people? Or, if you think about it, do we spend most of our time criticizing people? You know, just dissatisfied with them. Just kind of thinking that you're better than them. Or that they can't do anything right. Or do we try to help them say, you know, so-and-so does have a problem, but let's see if I can't help encourage them. What can I do to help the problem? And not be part of the problem. <clears throat> so, you know, godly criticism has its place, but we, we need building up more first and foremost. We need to build up each other. We need to encourage, you know, to be positive towards each other. That's a, that's a, you know, that's how we talked about when it comes to holiness and, and keeping the law, you know, doing what's right. Uh, we don't do so by saying, boy, if you don't straighten up, or you don't do this, you're in trouble. No, we talk about uh, all that Christ has done for you. How much we owe him. And we love him. And that's what's, see, we, we build each other up in the love of Christ. And that, and that automatically results in uh, being Christ-like. So we don't emphasize the negative. Sometimes we have to. Sometimes, you, you, don't, you know, a parent has to get out the rod. You can't always uh, do it through encouragement and, and so forth. But you know which way produces the best results. Remember the big problem in this church was their lack of respect for each other, putting themselves first. And so it's no wonder that it kind of finishes in this life. They're more concerned with being the right group than they were helping others. Uh, there's a, over in third John, we don't get to go there too often, so let's just run over there real quick and read that. Um, because you had the same problem. You had some people who were helpful in the church. You had uh, one person in particular who was not. And so we notice in verse 9, the one, the bad example, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, well, so I know we're talking about someone who has no idea what holiness really is, right? He's a leader in the church. He's a domineering leader in the church, as we'll see here. He puts himself first. So that's the first big clue. He does not acknowledge our authority. So in a, in a sense, we might say that not only does he put himself first, but he downplays the authority of God's word, because it is through the apostles, of course, that the word of God comes, and the will of God was known. So he downplays the authority of the Lord, and he wants to see himself as an authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who wants, wants to, and puts them out of the church. So if you don't agree with them, 
He's looking to get rid of you. He figures out some way to discipline you out of the church. What a mess. This is the opposite of what Paul is saying here in, in, in these three men that he's commending. And notice the contrast. You go back to verse, oops, I went back to First Corinthians. Go back to First, Second John here. And let's read, starting in verse 5, and notice the contrast here. <clears throat> and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm the second John. I knew that one. Third John. I'll get it right. Verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, that is, of course, the name of Christ, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, or, again, those outside of the church. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Well, it's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 16, right? These have shown themselves servants, and so give them the honor due. The Otrophes has shown himself to be someone who will, not, who will be served, and that's as far as it goes. He says, <clears throat> John says, when I get there, we're going to take care of that. The Lord sees that. So back in our text in verse 19, <clears throat> he talks about the churches of Asia sending greetings. Aquila and Prisca together the church in their house send hearty greeting in the Lord. So I think this is interesting because it speaks to a way in which uh, serving is seen. And we see it here. They have a, uh, those they meet in their house. There's a church meeting in their house. They've opened up their house to others to be helpful. Remember, we saw that with Lydia, who had uh, invited Paul and, and then back to her house. Because once you re- once you get saved, you realize that you're not your own. That everything you have is to serve the Lord. And so you don't have one. That's my house. I don't want you guys stay in church. You guys stay over there. This is my house. No, they're hospitable. That's if you're a servant, you're hospitable. And <clears throat> I think nothing shows then um, holiness, this godly fitness that we're talking about here, like being hospitable. And I think it's a problem in many places in America, many people, many Americans. Because we tend to value privacy and separation over being involved in the other's life. And that can be a problem. It's a problem we don't see in a lot of other countries. And part of the problem too is because we live in a land uh, that we have so much properties involved. You know, one, one guy who's from another town, from Europe, uh, said it was, he kind of noticed that when uh, people buy land in America, they, they, they put their houses where you can't see as far away from each other as you can. And, of course, it, where he was used to be, you, you, you want to live as close as you could to your neighbors. And, it, and, there's, and, it, and it's not necessarily good. I mean, I understand as an American, I kind of understand that. But, and, and I don't have a problem with privacy. But there's a point where we have to say, look, my need to be alone or to be private or whatever 
has got to, does not take precedent over opening my home up and my life up to be a servant. See, you see where you, you cross a line. And if you talk to Christians who come out of Islam and Hinduism, for instance, they don't understand how everybody can meet once a week at church and then uh, have nothing to do with each other this week because it, it, this is not the way it works in most places. <clears throat> and so, let's be aware that you know we are to be hospitable servants and to open up our home to, for the entertainment of the saints. And, and I don't mean just to have dinner parties. That's all well and good. But I'm whatever is needed. Whose house is it anyway? Our culture will go down to the bar during the week at fellowship, but they, they don't expect you to be in their house. No. You know, it's okay to meet over here, but not in my house. And that's a problem. I know saints whose house uh, is so messy and dirty that they would never dream of having anybody over. I know, I know one right now. I, I, you know, a great woman, Christian, a great servant, um, very supportive of me in the ministry, but nobody ever went to her apartment. She was single because she was a hoarder, and and you could just you could just talk to her. You knew, <laughs> you know, you probably couldn't get in her house hardly. And, you know, it shouldn't be like that. And, you know, there's other, probably other issues going on there. But, uh, you, it, it, see, that, that little disorder, if you want to call it sin, caused her not to be able to be servant in certain areas. Even, even though she was a great servant in some ways, it, there was a limit there because she didn't have control over a certain part of her life. <clears throat> so each home should be an open, transparent, and loving, loving haven haven for others. I don't mean that I can think of your home as my home, or that we can impose upon each other. Spend all the time, like, well, you, your house, you should open up, and I should be able to come over wherever I want to. No, we, we understand there's a need for privacy and, and separation at times, but when it's needed, we shouldn't be afraid to open up our homes to others. And even the people that we don't know that well, you know, not I'm, say, well, I have family over all the time. Well, who doesn't? So verse 20 then, as he kind of continues in the same, I think it's all kind of connected here. All the, as he gives a hearty blessing, Lord, all the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. So not totally unrelated are the expressions of love and service that we are to show one another if we truly are servants. In ancient times, kissing was much like we consider handshaking or a hug today. Uh, and they still, of course, do that in many places in the world. In fact, only twice in the Bible is kissing ever referred to in a somewhat romantic way. So Paul is speaking here of a spontaneous expressions of genuinely brotherly and sisterly love. Now, American culture has gotten away from kissing like this uh, in a greeting, by and large. Not, not always, but by and large, I guess. And again, you think about American culture that tends to keep your distance from people. <clears throat> but feelings of love must be expressed in a pure way, but they must be expressed. So I'm not trying to get us all to start kissing each other on the cheek, you know, in a pure way. I mean, that's nothing wrong with that. 
my point is not that we have to necessarily take this literally. It's, it's not what we do necessarily, whatever. But we should be doing something. You know, whether it's hugging, whether it's just saying something, whether it's expressions of love, agreements, uh, we, we shouldn't be cold and distant towards each other. And I think that's the, kind of the point here. If you love somebody, you express it. And if you are a cold and distant husband, for instance, that really doesn't talk to your wife much, certainly doesn't like to give expressions of love, well, that's, that's simple. That, that's, that, you, you, you don't even, I'm sure if you actually love somebody, if that's how you are, right? And so if we can't give each other expressions of love, in a, I mean, I'm talking about properly, in a Christian way, something's wrong. Why are we cold and distant? So Paul here encourages them, greet them with a holy kiss. And it shows his devotion to them, right? Are we devoted to each other? Then that should be seen. And so in both of these last two things, one cannot obey them and remain aloof. You cannot be hospitable. You cannot be uh, warm in your greetings. If you're aloof, and if there's you know, some people I don't want to be around, and you know, I don't want to get too close to anybody, that's just a bad, bad mindset for anyone who would call themselves Christian. <clears throat> and I and I, I, mean, I realize that sometimes by nature that's just how we are. But there's a lot of things about that we are by nature that we need to be getting rid of, we need to repent of. That's the whole reason God saved us. So don't let that be the uh, excuse, <clears throat> I wasn't raised that way. Well, maybe your parents treated you coldly and, and didn't raise you to be warm and affectionate or hospitable or whatever. Break the cycle. Maybe there's a reason that you're unloving and inhospitable, but it's no, it's not an excuse. Why do you think God saved you? The Holy, don't, don't sell the Holy Spirit short. He can change us. We shouldn't, we should be tired of hearing well, that's how I am. There's nothing I knew about it. That, that, that should never cross a Christian's lips. And, and I realize that it, we, there's a lot of things that probably each one of us, we could say that. That's how I am. But be careful about saying, I can't do anything about it. Well, maybe you can, but the Holy Spirit who made you can. So if it's wrong, repent of it and start asking God to help you do better. <clears throat> So even in these final uh, instructions here, it kind of just just saying a few words of, of imparting, he really says some pretty interesting things that, that require us to think about. That brings us to the last three uh, verses here. That if uh, I don't know if anyone has a KJV, if you do, you know there's there's some differences here. This is a really different section. Above is the ESV, in uh, most. Other translations as well. Uh, below is the KJV, and you see there's some differences. In fact, I've highlighted some differences. Uh, the first one, of course, is in verse 22, where Paul says, "If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed." Our Lord come. <clears throat> um, the uh, as all translations do from time to time, <clears throat> the KJV just transliterated it, didn't translate it. Just kind of left it in a in the Greek form, and expected you perhaps to know 
what it meant. Of course, we know anathema means to be accursed. Maranatha, may the Lord come, or a prayer that the Lord might come. Um, some translate it, the Lord has come, um, in thinking that uh, Paul is maybe saying that the Lord is going to come in judgment on the Corinthian church. You know, there's different ways to look at it, but it's probably a prayer that the Lord would come. Perhaps, though, because he does say, let him be a natural curse, it might be saying, Lord, come in judgment upon that person. And, and that would be a legitimate translation. But that's the first one. And then the second one, we're, we're talking about here in just uh, an end, a, a moment where uh, every translation of the KJV that I'm aware, that I have in access to anyway, doesn't even have. That last part. I'll say that here in just a moment. So, um, what, what, what do you make of that in closing? Of those two differences? First of all, let's be careful of dismissing our lack of service and love and hospitality and lack of affection towards each other because it's connected to our love for the Lord. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. How do you know you have love for the Lord? Well, you have love for one another. Jesus says that over and over again, John. So uh, we don't. We want to be careful here that we say, well, you know, that, that hospitality stuff, that loving stuff, that that getting involved in people's messy lives, maybe opening up myself to somebody else. Nah, that's not for me. I got too much pride for that. No, we don't say I got too much pride. I'm too shy. I'm too retiring. It's not me, you know, whatever. No, it is his pride. Well, Paul says, if you don't love the Lord, and the only way you know whether someone loves the Lord is whether they act like it, he says, let them be accursed. In other words, what he's saying is that they are accursed. If you don't love the Lord, there's only one other option, is you don't love the Lord, right? <clears throat> so be sure you love the Lord, because if you do not, you don't belong to him. And you won't be part of the church's fellowship. So one thing this tells us is that it's possible for us to, at times, make this determination. See, it's a command. You know, this is a statement of the fact that if you don't love the Lord, then they need to, they're going to have to be removed from the church. They're going to be accursed in some way. So we we can see that from time to time. Second um, John one. Now we're in Second John. One and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, or had from the beginning, that we love one another. Because that's what Jesus said. A new commandment I, I have, that is, love one another. And that's why I'm coming here and redeeming you. I'm getting, I'm getting the relationship with God and mankind fixed. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. That's all Paul is saying. You can say you're a Christian, but if you don't love the brethren, or if you don't obey the word, well, you don't have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. 
or give him any greeting. Now, this isn't really talking about hospitality. I know there are those who say that when the Jehovah's Witness comes on your doorstep, just slam the door in your face, don't greet him, don't invite him in. I think that's a, a misreading or understanding of the text. <clears throat> if you are competent to talk to them, then talk to them. And if it's in your house, fine. But what he's saying there is don't greet them. Don't, don't put a blessing upon them. Don't be part of their, uh, air. So don't, 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 you know, bless them on their way to go, uh, teach wrong things. Don't have them in to impede them, to help them on their way. Don't have any part of their ministry. But that doesn't mean we can't confront them and minister to them the truth because God has saved many of them, right? So, you know, that's just, Sometimes we get carried away with things. So if anyone does, comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And again, it's not that you can't say hi and you pass somebody. You're, you're, you're not blessing them. You're not participating with them. You're not encouraging them. Don't do anything that encourages them. Don't tell them to have a nice day. They need to repent. They don't need to have a nice day. They need to be under conviction, right? So it sounds harsh, and this kind of stuff sounds harsh in our day of inclusivism, but someday there's going to be a big separation. This kind of goes back to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 20, verse 22. Someday, when the Lord comes back, there's going to be a big separation. Now, all this inclusiveness jump is going to be over. And he's going to say, you depart from me, and you uh, go this way into the kingdom, right? So, the day's coming. God will make a distinction, and of course, God has already made a distinction in eternity past. So, in other words, all this matters. It matters how we live. It matters whether we demonstrate who we are, or whether we don't demonstrate that. So, we remove Paul's professors from our church, because they must be warned that the day of judgment is real and it's coming. And we just don't play nice with everybody when they're doing great damage to the cause of Christ. So Paul here, I think, is, is asking that God would remove some of the sheep or some of the people who claim to be sheep from the Corinthian church because they're showing themselves not to be. So it's quite a prayer. And then lastly... Um, here, kind of going back to uh, this part here in red, that uh, it's every commentator I know, old or new, every version of the Bible I know, other than the KJV, uh, understand this to be completely not, should never have been there, it was added later. For, uh, for one reason, uh, if you go back to verse 8, you see that the, this was written from Ephesus, not from Philippi, the two different places entirely, two different uh, continents really, uh, you know, across the Aegean Sea. So it's, it's just something that somebody wrote later that no translations have it other than KJV and, you know, who knows why they've got it. But just so you know why it's not there and somebody brings that up to you, um, and, and you know what the deal was with that. Any questions or comments as we close it? Yes. Maybe.